Okay, we're going to try this tonight, which is um, to some extent chapter five of my book, so you can look at it afterwards and see how well I uh, conveyed it. But it's uh, ongoing projects. I'm not sure that I got it entirely in the book, and it, le- and it, le- and it ends in, a, uh, in something that is unresolved in my head, so we'll see if we can, well, right, but it would be quite an accomplishment if we can get to the thing that's unresolved in my head tonight. So we're going to start by trying to understand a, um, what the Gemara says about something, and then if we succeed in doing that, we're going to try and understand what the Rishonim say about what the Gemara says about that something. And then if, we, uh, if we're really good, we'll try and get to what Roshim and Shkup says about what the Rishonim say about what the Gemara says. Okay, and, then we're, um, and the, the payoff is if we get to Roshim and Shkup, then this is not just a, a conversation about probability, it's also a conversation about ultimate issues like you know, what is the relationship between Halakha and what God commands and that kind of stuff. Um, so the first part of it is fun. And if you care about probability, it might also be valuable. Um, there's always a risk that I'll get exposed because I don't know anything about probability, but um, but I'll try to have I'll try to have fun and pretend. And if we get past that, right? If we get we get we get to the Rishimish Cup, then we can get to uh, we can get to ultimate issues. Okay. Um, so I'll just say background probability. Two things that interest me uh, as a layperson about probability. One is when I was in college as a freshman, I took a course as by Walter Wurzberger, Allah Shalom, uh, which was the equivalent of an introduction to philosophy in which uh, he brought me to what a friend of mine calls the epistemological abyss. Um, the epistemological abyss is when you realize you can't, there's no way to judge anything you know um, except by finding some other thing you're already, some other mode of knowing that you're already certain of, so you can't logically demonstrate that logic produces truth, and by the same token, you can't know the odds of probability. Right, and that's right, and so for some people, I may have just sent you into years-long depression, that's a risk. Uh, hopefully not, but if, if so, we should talk you know, in a couple of years. <laughs> um, I, I went off the deep end for a while uh, when, when the words were proved this to me, and I believe at some point in Shira, I, you know, I pointed out that there was no real difference between the odds that a hot dog would taste like a hot dog or a chair would taste, or a chair would taste like a hot dog, why don't we eat chairs instead of hot dogs? And the Wurzburger, being quite used to this, uh, suggested that since there's no, diff- there's no more odds that there'll be a floor if I take one step out of my chair than if I jump out the window, why don't I jump out the window? Uh, I really believe this, and I should learn the difference between philosophy and life. It's uh, interesting. But it still bothered the question of what, uh, the question like, what are the odds of probability uh, being true uh, really, really stayed with me. Um, right, or a way of thinking about like what are another, another way of thinking about that aside from the, the whole epistemology of probability mm-hmm. is what basis do we have for assuming that the universe that the, the universe to date that we are aware of is a uh, representative sample of the universe? Because probability is based on the assumption that that our that past experience is is a representative sample, and we have no basis for evaluating whether it's a representative sample or not. We could have lived in a pocket. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen Tom Stoppard's Rosenkrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So if you want to, it starts off with them uh, flipping a coin you know, like 50, 50 million times and coming up heads every time and debating whether that means that they're not in the real world or not. Um, okay, one, that's one issue that, that, that uh, destabilizes probability for me. Uh, a second is that I'm very attracted to a, a, a hard quantum mechanical vision both of the world and halakha. Uh, meaning that I like, you know, I like Schrodinger's cat and I like the idea that the world is just a set of probabilities that are collapsed by observation and I actually think about uh, halakha that way. As opposed to thinking that there is a halakha, I tend to think that there's an array of textual possibilities, an array of presidential possibilities, an array of moral possibilities, and what psak is, is collapsing the, wa- array, is collapsing the wave and deciding halakha is this at this moment. But all the other possibilities still exist. 
Okay? Okay. So now with that background, let's talk about what Chazal do with probability. <laughs> All right, so, there's a, right, so the Gemara in Chulin, this is source number one, says, Minaha milsa de amur rabbanan zil basaruba. Right, where, right, what is the biblical source? Uh, right, Menaha Milsa is the um, is the equivalent of Minayin, right, which asks for a biblical source. What is the biblical source of that statement the rabbis make, Zil Basaruba? Okay, Zil Basaruba means go after, and then you can define Rov as a plurality, a majority, whatever you want to call it, a probability. Right, where, where does this statement come from? So it's interesting, it's, it locates it as a rabbinic statement. And it's like we need a we, we, that in certain contexts we need a biblical source to tell us. So that sounds like we don't believe in probability at all. Right? We need a biblical source to allow us to rely on right, to rely on probability. All right? So it's not like a silly question. The Gemara reacts by saying The Gemara says it's also a silly question in halachic epistemology because there's an explicit source that says that you're supposed to follow a majority. Okay. So hopefully many of you are aware that there is not, in fact, a biblical source that says Actually, the verse seems to say the exact opposite. It says, do not follow, right? Uh, do not follow the majority for evil to tilt after the majority to, right, to tilt. But Chazal seemed, at least on occasion, to break the verse in half and say the first half is do not follow the majority for evil, and the second half is follow the majority. And then leave it to you to figure out which of those is true when. Okay. Uh, right, so we have an opening statement. How do we know this? And the re response is like, what do you mean? Where do we know this from? It's an explicit verse, and we end up by making a distinction. We say, "Ruba de Isa kamon, kigon tet chanuyot de Sanhedrin, lo komi bailon, ki komi bailon ruba the lete kamon kigon katanu katana." So now we're establishing uh, what really are three classes of cases. Two of them, right? Two of them are classified as ruba de Isa kamon, and in such cases. Uh, we don't ask the question either because we have a biblical verse or because it's obvious that we can follow a majority in those cases. And in one of them we do. So now we have to figure out what the boundaries of those cases are. So a Sanhedrin is a very easy question. case. Yes? Um, like as I'm noticing, um, like I'm not familiar with all of the examples, but it seems like some of these are like majority opinion and some might be majority. Good. Like exactly right. So that's what we're going to try to classify now, right? So a Sanhedrin is the easy case because it's a vote. Right, so that's an easy case, right? That you know, where you, um, we can figure out the votes are different enough. In the context of it sounds like deciding amongst the majority of people. So it's a democratic principle. So we're not challenging democracy, uh, right? We're challenging we're challenging majority in other kinds of cases. Now the question is, what's the difference between tet chanuyot, nine stores, and katana katana? All right. So nine stores is a case as follows. There are. Um, you find right there. You have a you have an area in which there are ten butcher stands. Each of them shechted one cow of identical size. All the variables are kept exactly constant that day, and um, right. And it turns out that and you, and you bought meat. From, sorry, and there's a piece of meat on the ground, um, which which we assume could only have come from one of those ten stands, and it turns out. Right, that, that you discover that one of those stands, the, the cow is slaughtered, was not kosher. Right, so you are, halakhically, on a biblical level, you are allowed to eat the piece of meat. Why? Because there's a 90% chance it's kosher, right? 90%, right? You, have, right, you, have, you, have, right, you know that, that it only come from, this, from these 10 stores, and you know that, right, and therefore the odds are 90%. It's all good. So that's the case where you follow in probabilities. Now it's, right, the challenge is figuring out which case don't we follow probability, right? So the case we don't follow probability is called katana and katana. So the answer is 
there are so right, so we're talking about is well um, is that um, if you have we'll see the, we'll see it in the next Gemara but I'll 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 scaffold it and then we'll do it and then we'll do it there is a yibum and chalitza are right are relationships um, that can that are incest if you um, if if they're not mandatory but mandatory if they are right marrying the um, right the the uh, the wife of a child of a childless man marrying one of the brothers or not marrying one of the brothers right that right the yibum is marrying chalitza is not marrying um, one. One of the it, the it turns out that the chalitza is not mandatory and therefore is incestuous, if the one if either party is infertile because the formal purpose of it is to have a child to sustain the the name of the dead man. So the question is, can you perform these rituals before people hit puberty? So the answer right because so if you follow majority, so then right following majority would mean you assume that most people. End up right, end up going through puberty, end up being sexually mature, and we'll leave that to the question of whether sexual maturity is sufficient. But with infertility, right, you know, modern infertility is different than right. We 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 could demonstrate infertility. That's a modern question. We don't need to deal with it. Right in the universe, where the only way right is either you're either you go through puberty or you're fertile, or you don't go through puberty, or you're not fertile. Um, right. So can we can we allow people to engage in this ritual? Before uh, and is it effective before they before they have puberty, um, because we rely on the majority. Okay, so why is that different than the case of the meat you find in front of the store? Why are they not included in the same thing? Like we're saying, the meat in front of the store you can eat, but this you can't. Okay, yes. Well, I mean, it's a rubric. The last I come on, meaning that the the thing doesn't actually exist. It will come into existence unless you say that somehow every person is determined to be. Um, in the future, X or Y, um, the, 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 the robe has not yet come into existence. Or, sorry, I think actually a better way of putting it would probably be that there aren't ten Kitanos in front of us. In other words, it's not that there are nine, nine good and one bad. It's that um, kind of there is one person who will either resolve themselves into one state or the other. Whereas for the case of the meat, all, all ten stores exist. Okay, so we're, we're we're fudging a little bit there. The formulation, right? You know, yeah. it, cha it changed a little bit because right? you were trying to do it linguistically yeah. based on less to come on. Then you discovered it's the robe that's less to come on, not the thing that's less to come on, yeah. right? And so, right, so you tried to come up with a different formulation, a little, little, little more challenging. What did you want to say? Quickly, oh, sorry, I, I, yeah. I don't know if I missed the question. We can check if people like now did puberty, right? We can check, but we but let's say right, we're gonna allow this marriage. Both after the fact, but you can't yeah, check in advance. So would you allow the marriage oh, when the right? Yeah. We allow the marriage when the right when the when the, the, the wife legal again. We're we're assuming child marriage. My wife will tell me, and I think she's right. Right? There's a there's a famous video now of Yaakov Maidan in uh, in in Yeshivat Haritzion, where the Gemara is talking about a case of whether you can divorce somebody by writing the get on the hand of a slave and then cutting off the hand of the slave. And Rav Maidan said, look at you, look, but this is obviously an immoral case. And so people need to be able to to, to, to try gewalt once in a while, and then go back to discussing the case intellectually, uh, right? So, so child marriage is a problematic is a problematic thing, right? Even has issues, so we're going to try gewalt, and now we're going to right, and acknowledge that there are moral issues here, but we're still, but you know, but I, I think textually, we're right, we're we're going to engage in a in a bloodless uh, analysis. Um, okay, so right, so the right, so the question is. When right when this child this when this child bride is, is let's say eight years old so she hasn't right, she hasn't gone through puberty yet and in the medicine of the time there was no way of knowing whether she would or wouldn't can you allow her to engage in levirate marriage 
even though it might turn out to be incestuous. Because <coughs> it might be that it'll turn out that she doesn't hit puberty and then, right, and then this marriage was actually, right, was actually forbidden as incest. Okay, so I'm going to put out a, a hypothesis um, for what the difference in the cases is, and you can test whether it's, um, which may or be, be sharper or not sharper. I forgot, first, David? Avi. Avi, Avi, okay, right. Remember, your last name is memory, is, is it? Uh, so, right, so, um, so, I thought, so I think that um, in the case of, of 10 stories, what I would call a, you know, a bounded set, you know, right, you know everything there is about every member of the set, you just don't know which one is which. Whereas the case of the of the minor of the minors, you don't know anything, right? You're you're just trying to bring a generalization from past experience. In the past, right? This, right? In the past, most right most children have grown up to be right to become sexually mature. So this child, assuming that the past is a representative sample, right? This child is more likely to grow up that way than not. Right? So that's what that's what I would you know call the. Um, what we generally think of as, you know, as, as uh, probability in, the, in the, the problem, right? What are the odds that probability is true? Because we don't know if the universe is a representative sample or not. So the Gemara says that the question of the nine stores either comes from the verse, or I, send, I, I tend to think that the vote comes from the verse. The bounded set is just obviously reasonable. And the unbounded set is something that requires support. But is like the risk in the bounded set greater, like the The risk in the bounded set is greater. Sorry, bounded bounded set. Set. Yeah. So for now, we're not going to draw distinctions as to what the the spiritual ramifications of the risk are. We're going right, to we could we could make distinctions in that case, but we're just trying to think of examples of risk. So I'll talk of in, in the first parak of Sachim, There is a sugya that is a term paper, right? We're just somebody where somebody was asked to represent all the cases of probability in the Talmud as being about mice and weasels. Right, that's where you get, you know, one white, white mouse, black mouse, white mouse, white, white weasel, black weasel, right, pile of chames, pile, right, pile of things, we can start all the cases. So as far as we're concerned, all the characters here are, are, are mice and weasels. Right, what the specific sins are don't matter to us. Right now, we're, right, we're just trying to represent the probability issues. Yes? I don't know if this is true. Um, it's not, not many probability matter, but there might be a difference between probability and statistics. Good, right. What is predictive and what is based on? Might be. I, 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 I don't know the definition of statistics per se, whether, you know, whether it, I, I don't know the definition. It, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a useful terminology that, I'm, that you know, we could use in shear and then discover whether it survives outside, the, outside that world. Um, okay, so I'll well get right. So the Gemara's question is, uh, in a sense, right, how do we know that probability is halakhically significant? Okay, that's where that's, that's where that's where we emerge in the that's where we emerge in, in in the Gemara. Okay, now it turns out interestingly enough, though, is that when when we teach this, when I first learned this sugya, uh, I was um, wrong, and that I thought that the implication was that everyone agreed that probability was um, was was significant. And the only question is, what is the source? Uh, right. What is this thing that the rabbis say? And I thought the rabbis meant the generic rabbis. But I was wrong, as we'll find out in a moment. All right, because actually this is a reference to a Gemara Nevamo stuff, some of the ultimate base. This is um, the second source. Where the, um, the Gemara says, Rabbi Yezer Omer Kohen Loisa et Akhtana, right? Why, the Kohen, why we're interested in the Kohen is not our issue. The Gemara says that the reason he says this is, Savar Lak Rabbi Meir, 
the Chayesh Lemi'uta. Because he holds like Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Meir is described as being concerned for the minority. Okay, and then the Gemara tries to prove that Rabbi Yezra doesn't actually care about the Miuta because, because there's a machlok in Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yezer about the Katana Katana. Right? Rabbi Meir says that a Katana Katana cannot do Chalitza or Yibum, whereas, uh, whereas Rabbi Yezer says that she can do Yibum, but not Chalitza. Okay, and the Gemara just frames that dispute as uh, Rabbi Meir is concerned about the minority, and that's why, meaning the minority of women who will not grow up to be sexually mature, uh, right? and therefore he does not allow Yibum, whereas Rebbe Yezer is not concerned that. Rebbe Yezer follows the rule. So it turns out that Zil Basar Ruba is not the statement of the rabbi, rabbinic consensus, it's the statement of the rabbis who disagree with Rabbi Meir. Okay, so actually, right, so the, the question of whether we rely on probability according to this Gemara, the question of whether we rely on probability is actually a dispute. And there is a halachic position that we do not rely, that probability is not given halachic significance at all. Okay, that's pretty wild. Right? I, didn't, I didn't get that under the Gemara. Like, what is life like? Right, what do you do without probability? Okay, but right now we're talking, now, we've narrowed it down and saying, right, so right, when the Gemara says, the Gemara is asking, why, what is the biblical source for the, for the position that follows majority as against the position that refuses to? Then the Gemara says, oh, but look, everybody agrees about a vote. Because if, if you don't agree about following the majority of vote, then you get into a reflexive loop. I enjoy reflexive loops. Um, so just to introduction, right, this is my, my famous or infamous article of, about the rebellious elder as the hero of tradition, uh, which I set up reflexive loops in halakha, uh, which the easiest example is, this, um, let's say, there's a, there's a contradiction that all of you are aware of but probably don't think about much. Do we follow heavenly voices? No, no right, why? Because the Torah is not in heaven, right? Good. Do we follow B'Shamay or B'Hillel? Why? Because it's a heavenly voice, it said so, right? Uh-oh. Right, this is one of the things, I, I, you know, I like people bringing it. This is like, you know, the, which won't tell this side, my, my opening joke for, for, modern Orthodox, uh, for modern Orthodox audiences, which does not help me raise money, but um, makes, just makes people nervous. I walk into two things I can't stand about halakha. One is the way that halakha is frozen. Nobody's willing to change in reaction to modern circumstances. Everyone nods. And the second thing is all the new chumras. <laughs> and he'll nod for a moment. And, oh! <laughs> um, okay, so all right, so we don't pass it like heavenly voices except when we do. Uh, isn't there a, a Gemara somewhere that says that gives another reason and then asks, Good, isn't there a Basco? super, and then answers, No, this other reason is for the opinion that says we don't follow the Basco. Super, right? So we can find another way to follow, right? To follow the hill against Beit Shammai, uh, right? The Gemara, Gemara, Yavama stuff, you're giving it to Dalit. Um, but um, I think Tosis, I think, really raises the issue, and I think the way which is correct, because it'll, you'll, you'll, you won't escape the paradox. Okay, what's, what, why didn't Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai just vote? If we have a principle, we follow the majority, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai should just have voted. Yeah? Some people weren't there, 
Yeah, or that Beit Shammai actually ambushed Beit Hill on the way in one day, so, right, so the 16, yeah. de, right, the, the, right, the, the 12 decrees. But generally, right, why is there an ongoing dispute, right, if, there's no, if, if they could just have voted? So the Gemara explains it as follows. Beit, Hill, Beit Shammai held that only really smart people got to vote. Beit Hill said, like, anybody who was, like, you know, reasonably qualified got to vote. And they voted. Guess what? A majority of the very, of the very smart people voted that only very smart people got to vote. Right. And uh, right, so then they voted again. It didn't. It doesn't help, right? So you got in, you got stuck in a reflexive loop because you got stuck in a reflexive loop, right? Maybe heavenly voices are legitimate to avoid reflexive loops, but not otherwise. Right? I think that's probably the most likely, uh, right? The most the most likely solution. I, I enjoy reflexive loops. Okay, but here we are, right? Here we are, right? So we have a dispute between a mayor and the rabbis, and we're trying to figure out what is what is. What is the position of a mayor that we don't rely on majority at all? Right? What is the, what is what? Right? What is the? Um, right? What does it mean to not follow the rope? Okay. So now we got through page one. We're fine. Would he, would he agree for the. No, right, so that's what, we, what the Gemara has done, is it, it starts off by asking the question, what's the biblical source for the position that disagrees with Remeyer? And then it clarifies, like, you know, Remeyer presumably agrees that we vote. Remeyer presumably agrees in the case that you're calling statistics. But in the case that we're calling probability, right, that's a live dispute. Right? That, <laughs> pardon? I don't know the difference. <laughs> well, you, terminologically, right, for this year, we're using that, right? Right, what I'm calling bounded sets, as opposed to right, as opposed to as opposed to arguments from the totality of the past, of the, pa of pa of the past experience of the universe. Um, but yours is much faster. Um, okay, so right, so now right, we after Tusugu, what we know is that the um, that there is that there is a dispute, but that dispute is limited to the case right to unbounded cases. So now we get to a um, we get to another Gemara. And the Gemara, right, the, or the continuation of our previous Gemara, which the Gemara tries to resolve the question, what is the, what is the biblical proof for this position, knowing that we're going to have a problem that if we actually come up with a biblical proof, we're going to have to figure out, like, well, how does everybody reject it? Right, so anytime you look for a proof for one side, right, you're, right, you know that you're going to have to, you're, you can't make the proof too good. Right, that's the, the, the joy of Talmudic argument is that you always have to make arguments that are good enough, but not unanswerable. Um... Right, and the things that are too obvious, right, the Gemara reacts by saying, Pshita, that's too obvious, right? An intelligent person wouldn't have said that, so we find a way, right, to make, right, to, we always find a way to construct the reason you could have said something else. Okay, so the Gemara sets out a particular tactic to try and prove it. What the Gemara says is, I can show you that there are things that are obligatory, halachically, that would be forbidden if we didn't follow majority. Okay, and the, the example it ends up with, which is the, right, so it says, like, for example, um, right, we're supposed to execute people for, um, for, um, for uh, striking their parents, but how do we know who their parents are? Clearly fathers, right? All right, so an example, right, so right, how can there be a law? So the answer is, well, maybe there isn't, maybe the laws only exist in theory. Right, so it's not, a, right, so we try a lot of things where we try we try, we try to prove, like, how could you do something? And the answer is going to be, you know what? We thought you did them, but you don't really. So we need an obligation. Okay, so the Gemara comes with this classic case of super improbability, which is when I shecht an animal, 
Right, so what do I have to do after I shaft an animal to make sure that it was kosher? I, I, the shaft, the shkita was great. But what do I have to do now to make sure the animal is kosher? Salting. I have to check the lungs. Okay, right? Salting is, is something I do to make it kosher. But how do I know that it's kosher, right? So an animal, really we call a trefa, is an animal that has a puncture in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an organ that is necessary for life. Okay, the lungs are just an example of an organ. An animal that has a puncture in any organ that is necessary for life is not kosher. Right? For example, the great debate about milk is that um, many, or a, a significant percentage of cows um, have a disease that causes their stomachs to swell. Um, and right, and um, this causes displacement and eventually can be very dangerous to the animal. So the solution for it is to take a needle and poke the animal and let all the air out. Um, but poking the animal creates, guess what, a hole in the stomach. Holes in the stomach make animals not kosher. So the whole crisis about milk in the United States because a, a, highly, a very significant percentage of, of, of milk cows in the United States have had holes punched, punched in, their, in their abdomens, which make, which make them trafe, and all sorts of interesting ways around that. Okay, now among the things, that, among, among the places where you really can't, cannot, you cannot have a hole are the trachea and esophagus. If the trachea or esophagus of an animal have a hole, the animal is not kosher. Now, shkita has to be done in one motion, right? One single motion. So, how, right, so after you shecht it, right, so we could say, okay, you have to check the trachea and esophagus. Okay, we don't actually, but, right, but we could say you have to check the trachea and esophagus to see if they were whole, just like you check the lungs of large animals. And so, you know, so I, I shecht the animal, I take out the trachea and esophagus, and guess what? There's a really big hole. It's cut in half. Now you'll tell me, of course, cut in half because the knife was there. But how do you know it was there before the knife? <laughs> so all you can say is, look, in past experience, we right there, there's a there's a you know there's a fairly large you know number of places the knife right the, the the place is fairly wide, and each time each time right in the vast majority of cases we don't find any holes other than the hole caused by the knife, and since the knife goes in different places, it's reasonable to generalize from past experience that there wasn't a hole either, where the knife went in. But we can't prove it. So the Gemara says, according to Rameer. We should never be able to eat meat. So the Gemara says, okay, Rameir was vegetarian. Ah, who can think what's the problem is going to be? Kurbanos. Pardon? Kurbanos. Kurbanos. And particularly, Rameir is not a coin. The Korban Pesach. Korban Pesach is an obligation. Every, right? you, have to, you, have to, you have to eat the Korban Pesach. So how, could, how does Rameir deal with the mitzvah of Korban Pesach, which would be impossible? Uh, right. Uh, if you don't follow the majority, right? So at this point, the Gemara thinks we have an absolute, we have an absolute proof that you have to follow the majority. Rameir is wrong. And at that point, right? That's the whole purpose of the Gemara that's on page two. And at that point, the um, the Gemara the Gemara turns around all of a sudden, and after like a whole long conversation with many many fun cases going about it, uh, Rav Ashi comes along and says right, and, and repeats the whole sugya, which right the, the whole sugya. And Rav, and Rav Kahana blows it up entirely. He says, your whole mode of, your whole attempt at, pr at proving things is wrong. Because all Ray Mayer can, can just turn around to you and say, I accept probability where it's impossible to function without it. So all your proofs, right? Your proofs were designed, look, we must follow majority because look, in these cases, you couldn't function without majority. Okay. You must follow majority, right? You must. You, you can follow majority in cases where you couldn't function without it, right? So the whole Gemara is just wiped out at that point. Everyone goes home sad. 
Um, the Sugi just sort of gives up, and that's where we right. That's where we, we end up saying, like, you know, we have no conclusive source for the rabbinic statement that we follow the majority. It's just an open dispute between the mayor and the rabbis, which has no source at all. The rabbis think that because we follow majority where it's necessary, therefore we follow majority even where it's not necessary. And the mayor says, what? Right, they have different default settings. Okay, that's right. right. That, that, makes sense. that makes sense to everybody? Okay, now we're really fine. We're going to hit the things I don't know soon, and we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's where we are at the end of the resistance, right? We said that actually it is a dispute between the rabbis or a mayor as to whether we are entitled to follow probability in circumstances where we could function with, right? We could live without, uh, without, without probability, and a mayor just says, okay, like, so we're all vegetarians except for the Korban Pesach. Yes? Um, for these things, like, it seems... Um, like, Rabbi Meir would also agree for anything, for like 50-50 things, that it's still, that it's still a suffix, right? Everyone agrees, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. like, so the, for the worst, even if it's 10, if it's 10% bad, 90% good, according to Rabbi Meir, that's still considered like us, like a, like you would, it, it can't be worse than a suffix. Uh, it can't be worse, but again, it can't be worse than a suffix, assuming that the issue is prohibition. But the issue is whether I'm allowed to do. Right? The issue is whether I have an obligation to do something. Right. So doubts go both ways, like Yibum. Doubts go both ways. So I, the word "worse" is an evaluative term that I wouldn't introduce necessarily. Okay. Okay. Um, so now we get to. Um, so now we're going to read on source three. We're reading the Torah Habayit. The Torah Habayit is the Rashbar Shlomo Maderet, right, late twelfth, early thirteenth century. Um, and we're, we're part of the classic smicha curriculum right now. Right, so if we get through this, then smicha is a breeze, because like, this is about as hard as it gets. No one knows why we do this for smicha, but that's what we do. Okay, so here we are. <laughs> um, okay, so he says, Mistabrally, it makes sense to me. Okay, so let's start with a backup rule that you all, right, that probably you all know, right? In cases of doubt of biblical violation, then you follow the strict side and you can't do it. In cases of doubt of a rabbinic violation, you are allowed to do it. Okay, but now we're going to get into this. The rule that you have to be strict about a, a, a case of doubt in a biblical case, is that rule biblical or rabbinic? Okay, right, that is the, that is the issue that is, on, that, is, that, is, that is in conversation here. The Rashba will say, right, so Rashba says, Mistabrali de Kishamru Sveko de Raisa Lechumra, Devar Torahu. That is a biblical rule. Why? De Sveko de Oraita Kivadai Min HaTorah. That there's a biblical rule that you treat cases of doubt as if they are certain. Cases of doubtful violation as if they are certain violation. Aval Raisi, Lerambam Zal, but I saw that Maimonides said, I thought that the Raman doesn't agree with me. The Raman thinks that it's only rabbinic rule that you have to follow the, you have to follow the strict side in, in right for biblical laws. Okay. And the Raman brought a proof to his statement. Okay, so Rabbi made the statement that a shtuki, a shtuki is a child whose mother is known, but father is not known, for our purposes, because the mother won't say, right? but it doesn't really matter whether the mother won't say, or the mother, for our purposes, it won't matter whether the mother won't say, or the mother doesn't know. Okay, now there's a risk that such a child is a mamzer. 
um, right? Either whether if the mother is if the mother is married, but let's not let's say silly. The mother is unmarried, but uh, but children of incest are also mamzerim, and therefore the question is: Should we allow this child to marry since we do not know whether the child is a mamzer or not? Okay, so Rabbah says, try Gavald again. We're all good. Um, right, separate share about how we solve mamzerim cases. Uh, good to know that the the high Beit in Israel has now ruled pretty consistently for several years now that we can that we resolve all cases of mamzerut, but um, but we're that's a practical question that's beyond our that's beyond our ken. Okay, so Rabbah says that biblically, a shtuki is allowed to marry another Jew. My tama, why is that so? Derov cherinetzlo. Let's assume, let's assume the mother is unmarried. So the vast majority of the people in her area will, right, uh, will not produce mamzerut if she has sex with them. Right? The child, the child of her, and, right, if you, if you, you know, the child of her and a and a and a representative, right, so a, a representatively chosen male will not be a mamzer. Okay. But then he throws in a complication, which is you know the thing which which drives one crazy if one wants to match halachah and reality. Um, so azli inhu So if the male went to her, then we say right, that the male comes from the majority of men, and the majority of men are kasher. Mayamart, but you'd say, Dilma Azli Ihu Maybe she went to him. Why on earth would that make a difference? Whether she, it depends. Like in whose house the tryst was. If the tryst is, if, if he goes to her house, then we have a majority. But if she went to his house, no more majority. You think about like the, the pool of people. Someone is like separating themselves from the pool of people. Yeah. And when they do that, they kind of like resolve. Like if someone comes out from the pool of people, we assume that they. Are most likely. And if they stay in the pool of people, then we don't assume that. Yeah, yeah. then they're all just like like mushed up together. Even though the odds are exactly the same from, from a statistical perspective. Yeah. Okay. So right, this is the great. Yeah. Pardon. Maybe we assume that like her choice might be non-representative. So someone someone we're drawing someone. Okay. Good. So you're right. So you're so you're right. You are trying to deal with the specifics of the case, right? And I'm trying to make everything about mice and weasels. So we're going to make everything about mice and weasels again. Uh, but the equivalent of mice and weasels here are are butcher stamps. Okay. So. We have two identical cases in the sense that there are 10 butcher stands and, um, right, and one piece of meat. And the piece of meat can only have come from the butcher stands. If I find the piece of meat on the street and nine of the butcher stands are kosher and one of them is treif, I can eat the meat. If I bought the meat in one of the stores, I don't remember which one, then I can't eat the meat. Why? Because we have two magic categories. One, matter, one category is called parish, and one category is called kavua. Right, we can try and find cool English terms for them later. <laughs> okay? Um, a parish is, right, as Avi tried to say, parish is when we can, we, can view the, the, we can view the variable that we are judging as having emerged from a set as opposed to still being within the set. And kavua is when we, we, have, to, we have to judge the set as opposed to right, as opposed to the individual thing. Now, endless, endless uh, arrays of ink have been spent trying to figure out what the difference between these two cases are. If somebody asks you that question, you look at them and you say, it depends on the makam leidas hasafik. 
And if they don't understand that, then they're obviously idiots because that just solves the whole problem if you just say it depends on the Malcolm Lane SSFA. Uh, right? you, know, if, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, nobody knows what the Malcolm Lane SSFA is. It's just like a magic wand we wave to claim that there's a difference between Parsha and Gavua. Um, there's no way to, I, I, there, there is some kind of like intuitive sense in like the case, we can understand the difference between the case of the, of the, of finding the meat and the case you don't remember where the butcher shop is. And it's sort of intuitive, and then we start talking about like who, right, right, like who went to whom, in right, in a, in a sexual partners in a giant city, and like now we're going to start, like, you know, does it? What if they met halfway? Uh, right? What, right? What if, right? What if she walked out the door, and then he walked out, and they walked in together? Right? You know, at that at that point, right, it just becomes it becomes hopeless. So we're just going to treat these two abstractions. There's this case called Parish and a case called Gabul. What do you want to say? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, these are both within the stores. What I just discovered is that within the stores, there actually are two different kinds of cases. Uh, right? and, and if it's, if we view it as parish in the store case, then we can follow the majority. And if we view it as kavua, all kavuas are treated as 50-50. Even if, right, even if there are 999,999 kosher shops. And there's one tiny, tiny, tiny little shop, which right, which every day right, has one one hundredth of the things in it. Right, betrays tough. <laughs> okay, we, we have a fine disregard for probability in that in that case. Okay, I mean, I, there are ways to you know bring things close to reason if you want. We could right, we can say that at a certain point we treat things as but roughly that's right. Roughly that's the, that's that's the case. That um, that. The statistics or the, the mathematics are indistinguishable. There, right, there, there's no psych, there's no real psychological difference in right. We construct cases of psychology is identical. Also, all that matters is that halacha calls one of them, uh, one of them one of them rov, and well, one of them parish and one of them kavua. Yeah, the danger, right? You, every, every individual case, you can try and construct it. But when you try and construct a rule, right, all the individual things will melt away. You just end up with an abstraction that halakha does something magical. <laughs> uh, and why it does it is not clear, but it does. But now I'm going to try and I'm going to try and make us, uh, you know, we're going to be distracted for a moment. I think it's valuable to tell you this. I think like a very useful insight into like how life and halakha function. Uh, it starts with um, two sorts. One is when I was in elementary school, at one point they made me read a book called Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, and I hated it with a passion. It was incredibly, incredibly dull. And I put it aside with other childish things. Um, second thing is that when I was in Smicha, my mother, my grandfather, my mother's father, Allah Hashalom, uh, lives on the Upper West Side, and I would go down to, his sh- to the shul that he davened in with several of my friends from YU, and we would give our YU shurim, and my grandfather would complain endlessly about our shurim, except for Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz, who's now the rabbi of KJ, who we like because he gave Musr. Now, what did, he not, what did my grandfather not like about our shurim? He said, well, you guys, they give shir for an hour to tell you that something is only us or Durabana. 
Who cares? Whether it's Usr or Abadan Usr or it's Usr. You know, tell people not to do it. Give them Usr, right? That was my grand. And I was utterly astounded that my grandfather said this. So I was like, what do you mean it doesn't matter whether it's the Raisa or the Rabbanan? Safek de Araisa the Khumra, Safek de Rabbanan Lakula. It makes all the difference in the world whether it's the Raisa or the Rabbanan. What are you talking about, Zaidi? And this was you know, an area of, of incomprehension between us. We loved each other, but we didn't always understand each other. And then, um, many, years after my, many years after my grandfather's death, I was going to. Is that a question or just have your. Okay. And it's okay. Now I know. Um, and uh, I went to go to my in laws for Pesach, and I would bring along. Um, a safer to read over Pesach. And I just always feel guilty about books that I, you know, in the tradition that I can't deal with. Um, so I pick them up every once in a while and try to try them again. Sometimes I put them down, sometimes violently. Sometimes, it's like, you know, there's a good outcome. And this time, Kisr Shonarach was glorious. I ended up writing Kisr Shonarach and I just related. But what I realized reading it was that he never, ever said whether something was Deorais or Deorabanam. I did a Barlan search afterwards. I believe there are 11 times in which he actually does mention it, of which at least seven are to say it doesn't matter whether it's Dorais or Dorabanan. Um, and I like say, what? How can he write? How can he not care? But then I understood, well, my grandfather was what we call a Kisr Shulchan Arachid. Right? Yeah, that's, that was the halacha he learned. So I understood my grandfather, but I still didn't understand the Kisr Shulchan Arachid. And then I thought about it this way. Let's suppose that we live in the normal understanding of halakha, which we're about to blow up. And the, the normal understanding of halakha is that um, halakha has, is a, um, it's, it's a, um, a digital switch as opposed to an analog switch on probability, meaning that it, has, it really has only three states. Definitely mutter, definitely usr, or doubt. Okay, that's reasonable. That's right. Normally, people understand halakha, right? That's right. Okay, now... There are people for whom definitely mutter and definitely mutter and definitely usr are points at the extremes, and everything in between is doubt psychologically. And there are people for whom doubt is like not a normal psychological condition. So doubt is a point of a perfect equipoise, and everything else is certainty, and that's what the standard halachic position is, because if you have 50.0001 versus 49.9999, we call that rove. Right? So the real halachic position should be that doubt only exists when it is artificially constructed. And it's also a psychological. There are some people who make decisions. Right? Their job is to make decisions. And so unless you artificially create a situation where they're not allowed to choose because they have to treat things as equally likely, they will always say, well, you know, there's a, this is a basis for seeing this is more likely. And there are other people who have much, you know, who, like, you know, even like, I know it's 60-40, but can I get my mind, right? You know, like, you know, what are the odds that it's really 60-40, maybe, right? You know, right? And you get stuck in loops like that. So my grandfather was the kind of person, and the Kisr Shulchan was the kind of person who made decisions even when the odds were tight. And so the difference between Deraiso and Drabanan never mattered because there were no Sveikot in real life. Whereas for me, like I live a life, you know, racked by doubt. So, right? so you know, getting me to make up my mind is a really hard, is a really hard thing. So what I'm arguing is that for the Kisr Shokharov, for my grandfather, the only case of Suffolk is Kavua. Because Kavua right, requires us to treat things as 50-50 whether or not they are. 
Okay. Whereas, right. Whereas, um, right. Right. So that that, and right. And based on that, we could say, aha. So right. We can also start thinking about the argument between Rabbi Meir and the Rabbanon. When we say Rabbi Meir is chayish lemiuta, what that means is that Rabbi Meir treats everything short of absolute certainty as a case of doubt. Whereas Rabbanon tend to treat everything short of short of perfect doubt as certainty. So you can treat them as psychological conditions, not just as formal legal positions, which play right, which play out. And you can think of, by the way, you want to think of like ways in which the word the word the word doubt can mean the same thing to people, but yet matter end up entirely differently. You think about the category reasonable doubt, which is the, the universal standard for criminal law in the United States. And all of you, I hope, being reasonable people, would think reasonable doubt means something different in capital cases than it does in cases in, in cases where the result is a five dollar fine. The same term, but it means something different. Okay. So right, so now we know, right? So we have, we have our background that there is a that there's a case of Kavua, as the Gemara says. But why is a shtuki kasher? So a shtuki is kasher because of a mimonafshach. Right, if the woman went to, right, if, sorry, if the, the, the male went to the female, so then the male is, is parish, and we, we're assuming that we're in a situation where most males would not produce mamzerit. Maya Mart, what are you going to say? Dilma azla ihu legabaihu. Maybe she went to him, and then havale kavua. Then we actually have a 50-50 case. So what do we do with this poor kid? 50-50, the kid is a mamzer, halachically, regardless of the reality. And we understand that to mean Okay, so the, this child is kosher either way. Because if we, if we actually can follow the majority, if it's a case of parish, so then majority is kosher. And even if it's defined as, a, it's formally defined as a case of suffolk, guess what? He's still kosher. Because the Torah says that, that uh, you're only a mamzer if we have certainty that you're a mamzer, and a case of doubt is not a case of, is not, does not create mamzer. Deoraita. Okay, so the Ramam says, aha, so we see that the Torah does not forbid cases of doubt. Because otherwise, how could a shtuki be kasher? So those of you right, used to thinking Talmudically, what's the obvious response? OK, so I'll introduce two other terms. Do you have a question? So there are the categories I call a binyan av and a chidush. Uh, right, a binyan av is a case that is, is a, um, a law or a, a case in which there is an intuitive intuitively appealing outcome. And a chidush is a case in which there is, an, a, there is an intuitively unappealing outcome. In cases where the law, where halakha, where we have a specific case, Torah case, where the halakha yields an intuitively appealing outcome, we expand that case to all cases that seem analogous. In cases where, we, where, the, where the outcome is, counter, is counterintuitive, we limit it. We say that's an exception. Right? So Abinin Av is a paradigmatic case, and a chidush is an exceptional case. So the Ramam says that, mam, that Mamzerut is a paradigmatic case. If a, mam, if a, if a suffix Mamzer is, right, is valid, therefore all sfekos are valid. And the Rashba says, no, it's an exceptional case. The reason the Torah tells us that a mamzer suffix is kasher is because our assumption was always the, was always the other way. 
You're not following something. Um, the, like, the only difference you made between the two was the was how logical they are. How intuitive oh, how we find intuitive, them. Sorry, yeah. how intuitive. Yeah, that's that's the word. How intuitive they are. Uh huh. Is that is that the um what's the word conventional? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Hmm. Nobody has or as nobody has, to my knowledge, articulated a different standard. Because usually, like when I see it, at least in the like in the Gemara, like sometimes it brings up like this can be a binyanav, and then it says there's this reason why it shouldn't be a binyanav. Like this case is different for some reason. Like you, it's there's some uniqueness to it. Yes, yeah. I think there are two different issues. One issue is whether the case is paradigmatic, and the second is how 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 far we extend the paradigm. So the Gemara often talks about how the Gemara assumes that a case is paradigmatic and then debates how far the analogy extends. And that's different than the primary question of whether it's, of whether, of whether it's paradigmatic or exceptional. Okay, right, is that, that reasonable? I think so. Okay, good. So we'll hold it for now. Um, isn't yes. It, isn't it different? Oh, you had a question, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that Darabana? Nope. We're assuming that's Yeah. Is it? Hmm? So the interesting question is what is the what is the source of the difference between Parish and Kavua? That's a really great question. I don't know the answer to that. But it is assumed all the way through to be biblical. And then and then because that's Because we're talking about the Arisa law here, right? Right. Right? It's Vartorah. This is all an explanation of Vartorah, so it has to all be biblical. Ashtuki is Asr Drabana. And then how, but yeah, then that, that's a moral question. Like if the Torah, we have a biblical source that a mom's or something is kosher, why do the rabbis create circumstances? And that's a, that's a more elaborate thing. Yeah, so there could be this just an extent, right? So if you take, if you take the, um, the, um, the Ramah's position, then it's not such a, such a difficulty. If you take the Rosh's position, it's harder. But, that it's a separate share of right? I have an article about it, but it, it, would, it requires a lot of heavy sledding. I don't recommend reading it offhand. Uh, because they really like want to, you want to spend time reading it, if you want to understand. Uh, yes? Yeah, is, is there a difference between Binyanav slash Kalaprat from a Pasuk versus like just the... Not Kalaprat, Binyanav versus Kiddush. Meaning, right, meaning like... Well, I, I guess the, the point I'm making is that like Kalaprat, we assume that the, right, the, that the Prat... Let's stick to Binyanav. Okay, is it, 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 it's, it, yes, we're talking about you know, principles of Midrash Halakha. So we're yeah. talking about a, a biblical case. Every time the Torah tells you the law in a particular case, we ask the question, should we expand out from that case? Right? You know, you, you, like, one of my favorite sugya always is the Kodah Briot sugya. Right? So in the Kodah Briot sugya, the Gemara says, the Gemara, the Gemara says this line, Bili mina. Why, don't we derive, why don't we derive all other cases from that? Right? That's, why don't we make it a Binyanav? And the answer is, we do make it a binyanav, but only to cases like it. Right? That's, the, that's, right, that's, the, right, that's the approach. The, I'm using the term binyanav. You won't see people use the term binyanav in the way I am necessarily. Right? I'm, I think it's the closest way to explain the phenomenon. But I, I agree that the term binyanav is not usually used to talk about just standard expansion. It's usually more, it's more technically. You have a question? No? Okay. So, 
Um, right, so the so the Ramam so the Ramam says, Alma right, he derives from Mamzer, the Torah only forbids the definite Isurim, but the Suffolk Isurim it does not. And the Rashba says, the but that does not seem to be right to me. The Adarabba, on the contrary, Dokmina de Baalma Sveka Diraisa Kivadai. Right, let's 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 learn that in, in other cases, right, that this case is exceptional, and let's derive from the fact that we need a verse here, right, that Sveka Diraisa Kivadai. Uh, generally, it says the low because if I'm wrong, why does Rava have to spend so much time explaining why Ashtuki is kasher? Let Rava just say Ashtuki is kasher because Safik Three words. He doesn't have to have five lines and talk about Rub. He didn't have to mess our lives up by introducing Rub and Kavu and all those sorts of stuff. He could have just said because Ashtuki is a Safik. So that's the that's the Rashba's uh, proof, right? Lema may my tama have a lay suffix, but suffix mutrid vartora. The hashduhuk ilu kulu sveka deraisa. Then it's right in that case is just like all other svekos deraisa. So my shna mamzer naka, right? So right if that's the case, why why do we need to talk about mamzer specifically? Ella vadai suffix mamzer dafka kamar aval shar sveke lo v'tama de mamzer. And Mamzer is the exception. The Torah has a rule saying only Vadai Mamzer, and the fact that the Torah has to have such a rule teaches us that the default is the other way. Maybe the Rabbim holds it as paradigmatic. Right? Right? That's the counter argument, right? I don't think it can be paradigmatic because he has another case. Right? Another case is about. Orla in Chutzla Aretz, right? Orla is fruit grown, grown during the first three years of a fruit, of a fruit tree's um, uh, existence. And the Gemara says that we need a halacha l'moshe misinai to tell us that you can eat, um, that you can eat suffix Orla in Chutzla Aretz. And why do we need it? And if the default is that it's mutter, why do we need, why do we need a halacha l'moshe misinai? Okay. All very good. Okay. Um... Right, but then he says the Yeshlom. Maybe that proof isn't really good at all. Um, so now we have we can choose other factors, which is what what we would have thought this object was, but we, right prior to introducing the majority, we're gonna we're gonna leave that aside as a red herring because at the end of it he says This is all that matters to us right now. But all the Ramam's all the Ramam's answers in the end. The Ramam can answer this case, the Ramam can answer that case. I have an unanswerable um, challenge to the Rambam. The unanswerable challenge to the Rambam is Shim Kane, Asham Talui, Liman de Omar Loba in Khatika Mishtechot, Hechi Mishkachala. Now what is an Asham Talui? Asham Taloi is a weird sacrifice. It's a sacrifice you bring because you don't know whether you sinned or not. As opposed to a chatat, which you bring, or other kinds of ashan, which you bring because you're sure you sinned, right? Here is, yeah, I might need atonement, so I, right, so I bring it, so I bring a sacrifice. So the Gemara says that there is a machloket as to under what circumstances you um, you bring this this asham taloi. One person says that you only bring the asham, you only bring the asham taloi uh, if you have a chaticha mishte chatichot, meaning that I have. Two pieces, usually the Gemara's example is fat, right? Chelev and Shuman. Chelev is forbidden fat, Shuman is permitted fat. So I have two pieces of externally indistinguishable fat, and I ate one of them, and I know that one of them was kosher and one of them was treif, and I don't know whether the one I ate was the kosher one or the treif one. Okay, then I bring an Ashram Tolay. 
But if I have one piece of fat, and I don't know whether it was kosher or treyv, then I don't bring an asham taloi. The other person says, no, even if it's just one piece of fat, and I don't know whether it was kosher or treyv, I still bring an asham taloi. Okay, now the Rashba says, let's follow what it says. The, Ramam, the Ramam's position is impossible, because if the Ramam were right, then according to the position who says that you bring an Asham Taloi, meaning that you bring an Asham Taloi even if you just ate one piece of meat and don't, or fat, and don't know whether it was kosher or treif, how could, according to the Rambam, how could you ever be, bring a sacrifice? Now, what's the question? Why, couldn't you, why can't you bring a sacrifice? Bring a sacrifice or not, right? The answer is as follows. Okay, I have, I have, right, this is a piece, this is a piece of fat, right? Okay? I don't know whether it's kosher or treif. What does it mean I don't know whether it's kosher or treif? Meaning that for our purposes, we will treat it as exactly 50%, whether it's kosher or treif. Okay. Now, I ate it. So, could be kosher, could be treif. Was I allowed to eat it? Depends on the whole like the Ramam or the, right, or the Rashba. According to the Ramam, I'm allowed to eat it. According to the Rashba, I'm not allowed to eat it. Now the Rashba says, if I was allowed to eat it, that means it's kosher. If there are two pieces of meat, of oh, fatty, fatty says, then the fact that I'm allowed to eat it doesn't mean it's kosher. It just means I'm allowed to assume that it's the kosher one. But if there's only one piece of meat, then I'm allowed to eat it. That means it's kosher. How can I have to bring us that? What would what, what I need atonement for? So the Rashba says that this is the dispositive proof. This is the dispositive proof for his position against the Rambam that um, because he makes the assumption that it's not possible for me to be allowed to do something and then have to atone for it. So do you find that do you find that compelling or not? I mean, not at all. Like, especially given your explanation before about quantum states, I guess the Rashba was probably before that era of science. If you understand the piece of meat as being in this unresolved state between between mutter and Asr, um, then you could have to right. So there, are, right. So there are two fundamental positions you can take. Right. One, right. The um, we can look at it and say, look, you know, you're allowed to take the risk. But the fact is that you ate something forbidden. It was really trade. And then we can say, okay, but do I need atonement for eating something that is trafe when I'm allowed to eat it? What does it matter that it was trafe? I was allowed to do it. You're bringing a sham. This is what we're doing, right? A sham taloi is I bring in a sham because I don't know whether the piece of meat I ate was kosher or treif. But I was allowed to do it according to the Rambam. I think there are certain cases you're allowed to do something that like is extenuating that you're not normally allowed to do, but it's still the wrong. Like it's still like would be meriting to bring in a sham. So like what? Actually, you can get like a like you can get. I don't have a specific example in mind, but there are. I feel like there are times where like. You're in like a small talk. Like, you could. Ah, okay. You had a question also. Uh, yeah, I would just think like manafshach. If if you think that you can, um, 
that you can't possibly bring an asham if you are allowed to do it. Um, why do you need to go specifically to this case? What's the problem when with if you have two in front of you? Um, and other like. So right, so I think you're like, like why why do you need to, why why are we saying there we have two cases where it's like in this one it's a problem but in this one it isn't. When it's okay, very good, right? So the explanation I gave doesn't doesn't account well for doesn't account well for that, right? So why is the Rush but comfortable saying? That uh, that I have to that I have to atone if uh, in, it's okay to atone if I brought one if I ate one of the two pieces of meat, there again right there again my action was permitted I was allowed to eat the piece of meat. So why would, right yeah so that's a good that's a very good question on my formulation of the Rashi. I think back to the like the one. Yeah. Right if it was if it leads to an like opposite version. Right. Okay. So what I want to argue, right? Maybe, um, right, well, maybe it's not convincing or not. And your, and your question is right. I don't have the right. Right. So the challenge is to figure out what the difference between the t- why the Rashba thinks there was a difference between the two cases. Right. What's the difference between eating one of two pieces of meat, right, or eating one piece of meat? In the end of the day, the action is permitted, and what the Rashba seems to think. Is that if right if it's one of two pieces of meat, then the action is permitted, but the meat is not. And if there's one piece of meat, then the meat must be permitted. That's right. That's where that's, that's where he seems to be going. And and it's like no, maybe right, maybe not. Maybe the uh, maybe the meat is not permitted. Only the action is permitted. And maybe I require atonement for eating trafe meat, even if I was allowed to. Right, so that would be the Ramos response, right? I can require at- atonement for eating trace meat, even if I'm even if I'm allowed to. Um, okay, right. We can, there, there are other ways in which the issue comes up, right? Where the um, it comes up by chatsi shir also, right? Where right the sh- the the measurement for eating trace things usually is you have to eat at least an olive size. What if I eat half an olive size? So that's a machloket Rav Yochanan Reish Lakish, and Rav Yochanan says it's obvious you're not allowed to eat half the size because the fact that not allowed to eat a whole size means that every, every molecule of it is forbidden. And Rish Lakish says, no, right? Only olive sizes are forbidden, right? There's, right? There's no, if, there's no if, it's not, if it's not considered, an act, the, act, the prohibition is eating. If it's not considered eating, then, not, right? then right? I'm, allowed to, I'm allowed to play ping pong with, right, with pieces of meat that are, that are smaller than olive, right, olive size, and taking small bites is less than that. So there we, the question of whether, uh, the question of whether objects uh, have a real, I guess this is an issue all over halacha, right? It's whether halachic status is real or nominal. Right? Is, is, halach, is halachic status something given just because we call it that and there's no reality underlying it, or do we say, nope, halachic status actually defines something as real? And that has implications all over. For example, when we talk about the laws of Mamzerut, do we care whether somebody is actually the child of those parents? Or do we just care that legally we think they are? And that depends on what sorts of things, ways out you are. Okay. So the right, so the the Rashba tries to bring this argument, right? And the Rashba says, and Rashba thinks he has disproven, uh, he has disproven the Rambam. Um, and what I want to say is, like, you know, let's remember again, this whole conversation takes place within the Chachamim, who say Zil Basaruba. But Rabbi Meir says that right, all cases that are not certain are right are sfekot, and therefore. The machlokas, according between the machlokas in the Rambam and the Rashba, according to Meir, applies to every case other than certainty.
Rameer says that you have to treat everything short of 100% as if it were 50-50. Right? Really what Rameer does is he extends the category of Kavua to all cases, right? to all cases, all, all ordinary cases of Rov. Right? So let, let's set that up again. Right? We thought that Kavua was weird and called the parish was, was, called the parish was where it was normal. Right? But, but that's only true according to, according to Rameer, Kavua is normal. Because he thinks you can't follow majority, you can only rely on certainty. Yes? I thought Rameer agreed about, I thought these were all cases under the store case, and I thought he agreed that in the store case we follow the majority. Um, that's an interesting question. Does he, follow, does he agree in these cases under the store case? Um, the cases we discussed about Mzeris were under the store case, but, there's an un, right, but the argument about whether we follow Rove or not applies to all cases. Okay, very good though, right? That, that was sloppy. Okay, so here's what I want. According to Mayor, you have to treat all, all possibilities as equally likely. And according to the Chachamim, no, right? You don't, right? You, right? You all, right? You have, according to Chachamim, you treat all improbable cases as non existent. That's really a dispute between following Rove or not. Right? If you follow Rove, it means that any case other than exactly 50 50 is certain. 50.001 is just same as 100, and the, therefore the only case of, therefore the only time you ever can have a doubt is if we manufacture it, whereas the current quarter mayor, the only case you cannot have a doubt is if we manufacture certainty, and there'll be rules about when, when, when you can treat probability, prob, when you can treat certain things if they're certain even though they're not. Okay, so let's take this one step further. Okay, I want to, um, we probably won't, we won't get to read it inside. There is a um, there is a marvelous article which I referenced in the chat um, by the JLIC rabbi at um, at Yale, Alex Ozar, uh, about Rosh Hashanah, which is what this chapter was written as an attempt to uh, respond to. And here's the here's the question: the way I think he formulates it, and you can look up afterwards and read his article, things that shatter roofs, and see whether you agree with me, and then we can read Rosh Hashanah afterwards and see. Whether um, whether you think which way you think his re- that his reading is is correct in Rosh and Shkaf. So I need to throw for one other thing, which is say that there is a whole position, which is Rosh Hashanah starts out that maybe the difference in Mamzerut and all other cases is that in Mamzerut we treat all cases other than certainty as safek and permitted, whereas in all other in all areas of halacha, other areas of halacha, we we, we follow majority. There's a way to say that Mamzerit, we follow Rameir, but we follow him Makula, and everywhere else we follow the Rabbanan. Right? So just be aware that that, that changes Mamzerit a lot. But here's what, here's what um, Roshim Mishkat may be saying. Like, you know, in order to address this whole question of what, how, what's, whether, whether we say Safik Deoraisa Lekumra or Safik Deoraisa Lekula on a Deoraisa level, we have to ask the question. What do we think intuitively? Should Suffolk Deresa be um, be mutter or usher? Should you lachomer lakula? Right. If I ask you the question, right? You know, the Torah tells you no information whatsoever about what to do about a case of Suffolk. And now I ask you, I ask you, right? But look, you are presented with a right, with a piece of meat that has a fifty percent chance of being kosher. 
Are you allowed to eat it or not? Intuitively, I would say no. You would say no. What about the rest of you? What about if it has a 1% chance of being treif? You would take it, right? So it's, right, but you can understand like how intuition could change in all, right, right, in all those circumstances. Okay. Now, the next question I have to ask is, do you think that your intuition has to be included within halakha? To say that you're not allowed to eat it, does that mean that it's usr? Or does it just mean that you, sh- that you should not do it? Well, you're assuming that because it's natural morality. So that is the big question, right? So Rav Shkup, right? So the question is, does Rav Shimon Shkup believe in, uh, believe, and if so, it, right, in what sort of, um, I wouldn't say ethic, in what sort of extra halach or pre-halachic normativity? So Rav Shimon Shkup seems to be saying, in a, uh, in a couple of places, um, if I can find a place where we actually, um, Right. says that he doesn't think that the Torah has to tell you not to risk your life. People understand that they're not supposed to risk their life. They don't, not because the Torah tells you not to risk your life, but because risking your life is not something you should do. Wrong, if you want to refer to it. So he says, maybe the same logic applies to souls. Who says that you're allowed to risk, right? Well, it should be intuitively obvious that just as you don't risk, you don't risk your life except for right, really worthwhile purposes, so too you don't risk your soul except for really worthwhile purposes. And therefore, he says, we can hold that Suffolk de Orisa is lakula halachically and still think that you have to bring a sacrifice for following it. Because just because it's permitted doesn't mean it's right. And he's not thinking of this as a, you know, so this thing, he's not thinking of this as right? He's not thinking of the Torah leaves space for you to be stricter than the law. Right? He's not thinking of that. He says, no, there's just it's, it's something that doesn't require a law because you should know it. Right, so that's right. So that's why this is really, really interesting. But yes. The, um, like, like the if it's a if it's such a powerful svara, which why isn't it usher? Yeah, so that's like a really interesting right. So, right, so that's why that's based on svara. Well, so you're right, right? Like, you know, so, I, so usually, like when I'm in, you know when I'm in a polemical mode, right? So I tell you, I think the, the coolest gemara in shas and really the most important to know is this. Right, the gemara says the three things you have to give your life up rather than do. Right, and you would think. If there's anything the Torah has to, right, has to be really clear about, it's that you have to die rather than do it. So the Gemara says, okay, right, so you claim that there's these three things you have to do. Well, how do I know it? How do I know about Avodah Zarah? Because there's a Pasuk which says, Bechol Nafshecha. How do I know that you have to give up your life rather than commit Gilead Arayas? Because there's a Pasuk which says, Ki ka'ashir yakum ish nefesh, It compares adulterous rape to murder. And just like you have to give up your life for murder, you have to give up your life rather than commit adulterous rape. And the Gemara says, but how do I know that I have to give up my life rather than commit murder? And where it says, well, that's just as far. Well, I, I think that there, there is a difference there. Yeah. Meaning the one is like, okay, there are two lives in the balance. The other is like, can we, based on a svara, establish that something is halachically wrong? So what I want to, the, the reason I make this point probably is because it's not just that the Gemara says that there's a svara that you can't kill somebody else. The Gemara says the Torah is written 
on the premise that you understand this. Because right? there's, an, there's a, a word in the Torah that says adulterous rape is like murder, it's a whole verse, which is only understandable if you already know the law about murder. Right? So it's an underpinning, right? it's, an ethical prior, it's an ethical priority to the, right, to the Torah. But what Rosh Hashanah tries to argue here right, is that there are things that are, right, there are things that are intuitively obvious but do not become part of, but do not become part of halacha because we can say it's mutter, and yet you bring a sacrifice. So that's a different kind of category, right? It's a very challenging philosophic category because you're right, right? If, it's, if we say lamidli kares farahu, right? So why doesn't this far? The answer is, he want, like what he tries to argue is that it's normative, but it's not an ethical violation. Right? That's right. He's trying to like a new ca- a new category of normativity, uh, right, where you understand it's not what you should do, but it's not ethical, so it doesn't become part of halacha that way. So that is the, right, that is what um, is the raging debate about, um, about the, um, all right, about what Rosh Hashanah means here. Right? If you take a look on page six, right, in the, in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the, the bolded things on the bottom where it says, right, the last bolded thing in the middle, third line, it says, Lefizeh, so it comes out for us that the fundamental dispute between the Rambam who says and the Rashba who says is that the Rambam needs to even before it became rabbinically prohibited to eat things that have a 50-50 chance of being, of being treif, you should have known it. Just like it would be perfectly reasonable for people to understand they should not risk their lives even if the Torah did not have any command of them to be smart dim odin after seicha. Whereas, according to Rashba, then the Torah prohibits this as well. All right, so there's a category of Alpid Darke Seichel Hayashar. That, um, that he thinks exists for the exists for the Rambam, and it, you know, philosophically it's very nice for the Rambam to be the one who thinks this, um, but not for the Rashba. So that's where I think we'll leave you. Is uh, right, it's a really cool idea that there exist these categories of normativity that are not absorbed into halacha, um, and yet if you violate, you do, you, re- you require atonement, but we're making a choice not to include them within halacha. Because right, we could have said Lamalikra, right? Lamalikra Svarhu. So, what is that category? What meaning, what meaning uh, does it have? And I would point out, you know, that I think that the conversation is deeper when we recognize Rav Meir's position is that it's not just about 50 50 Svekot. It's right, because when it comes to risking your life, we all understand that that goes beyond, right, that you're not allowed to take 49% chances of dying either. So maybe, right, so why should you be allowed to take 49% chance? If we view this as risking your soul in the same way that we view it as risking your life, so then, right, the standard should be much, much lower in 3% chances, right? You can't, right, unless, or it should be a sliding scale. You can only take certain risks for, for real gains. And so a mayor's position now makes a lot of sense. Not as halacha, but then if we think the halacha just... Um, just, just embodies the intuition or meditation says like what why can you ever take chances about right about prohibitions?
So then the interesting question is, so the, well, the Ruchumers, right? So this has a super Chumras, right? You know, then an like, interesting question, like why the rabbis, the, the rabbis chose, the rabbis put in laws, but they put them in at very specific levels. The rabbis say you can't, but then they have all these rules that say you're allowed to treat other kinds of circumstances as definite. Right? There are also the rules that, that limit the circumstances right, of Savik. And the rabbis, nobody thinks that the rabbinic rule, that if Savik deraisa lechumra is a rabbinic rule, I don't think anybody thinks that Rav Meir's position applies to that. I think Rav Meir's position only applies, it only applies if it's biblical. I think Rav Meir's position only makes sense if it right if it's um, if it's talking about risk yeah i mean otherwise wouldn't it just be a sveksveka a sveksveka is so be careful sveksveka doesn't mean that the odds are less than 50 percent well sveksveka is a formality doesn't the rashba say so some people try to rationalize a suffix by saying it's less than 50 less than 50 percent but what i hope you get from this year is that real odds almost never play a role in halacha Right, right. At Halakha, right, we, we artificially construct cases as either certainty or 50%. And so when we say that it's 250%, it doesn't mean the other 25%. It means we took a case which was 99 to 1, and we treated it as 50-50. And then we take another case of 99 to 1, and we treat that as 50-50. Also, now we say, oh, look, it's 25%. But in real life, it could still be 99%. I mean, I was going... My main point was that, the, um, like, there is a... Halachic category of sveik sveika. Yeah. That, uh, like, if you have a suffix deraisa, even even if you say suffix deraisa is deraisa, you still have the category of sveik sveika. Um. So, like, if you have then have another suffix on top of that. Yeah. Like, the mayor would still have to say it, it's fine. I don't know if sveik sveika works better in there. It's a fair question. Oh, yeah. Except the except the according to I think it's I think it's the Rashba who says that sveik sveika works because it's fifty fifty times fifty fifty you get twenty five percent. Then uh-huh, Rav Meir would disagree with the exactly entire, right. With Very the good. Entire idea of sveik Very good. I think Rav Meir's position is underdeveloped um, halakhically. No one thinks we paskin that way. Right? Everyone thinks we paskin against Rav Meir the vast majority of the time. And I don't know how well he's ever been understood. Like, that's one of the interesting things we're learning this year. I, you know, this is back stuff that we learned in Smicha, which is to say that I um, did it pro forma and really didn't find it very interesting at all. Um, so I, you know, the stuff that I did in Smicha, I'm not going to know very well. It shouldn't be on tape, but it is. Um, uh, you know, I said I, I made my way through it, but it, uh, when I was doing this, it was like I, I was I was passing tests. I wasn't so excited intellectually. Um, but as I started going back again, I was like, maybe maybe no one's really ever understood it there. Uh, right, and maybe this is a, right, a really cool kiddush that Rameir, you know, Rameir, it's not that he doesn't follow majority, it's that he doesn't, right, he doesn't accept probability, and the question is, why doesn't he accept probability? Well, he doesn't accept probability because why should we accept probability? There's no, right, there's no way of knowing it. It's epistemologically unsound, <laughs> right? Really, right, really, no way, right? I, I wonder, right? I wonder if Rameir is much more exciting than, um, than, it's, than is usually the case. Uh, I don't know the sugi well enough. Um, I, I got into this again because Rabbi Ozer, Wrote this article and I thought it was super cool, but I wasn't sure it was true, so I wanted to uh, to go into it. And I'm always interested, you know, for because the reason I told you, I'm always interested in the question of whether there are uh, extra halachic norms. Uh, but this is a really interesting one because if it's an extra halachic norm, it's not a, it's not, it has to be distinguished from ethical norms. All right, it's darke hasecha, or it's a rational norm, as opposed to an ethical norm. That's a whole new category, right? Which you know. Which uh, you know, 
probably is worth someone's PhD in a philosophy department somewhere. Um, or maybe they've already been done in some thinker, right? The distinction between rational and ethical norms. Uh, I should ask people uh, whether that's been done. Um, but also, hopefully, it's a, uh, it's a cool illustration of how you can start from what seems like perfectly ordinary halacha, you can turn into like wildly intellectual things, and then it turns out those wildly intellectual things actually have like really wild uh, moral you know, implications of the whole nature of the structure of the system. Um, so I think that's a valuable, a valuable thing to, to get. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. That was fun. Take questions. Yes. Yeah. I, I just, like reading Rav Shimon I don't know if I see the, the extra halachic norm there. Like it seems to me that what, what he's saying might just be that it's much lechatchiva to eat this piece of meat, but you will have to bring an ashram telway because it might have been usher. The Rama says, right, I'll just read that line through later. Sarich adam lifrosh misafik yisurin al pi darki hasechel hayashar. Oh, this one. Um, Right, that's his line. Sarif, I'll oh, yes. Okay. Um, I have one minute. Sarah will do better than this. Rich.